Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So in the, uh, the last three weeks, this topic of enlightenment, we explored the, the meditative path. The classical <clears throat> meditative path is outlined in uh, the suttas, the discourses, and the commentaries. Um, a gradual path of practice. <clears throat> and then... Uh, Next week, we talked about not a gradual path, but using, um, in the Buddha Dharma traditions, a kind of sudden awakening, a penetration of reality um, that can happen in a moment. Hearing a, hearing a discourse or seeing things in a new way just in the middle of an action where somehow we open up to a different reality. <clears throat> and then, as mentioned, often there's a, then a, a, a deepening and stabilizing of that understanding. And then last week looked at different uh, uh, Advaita, non-dual traditions um, that open the mind through uh, letting go and through, again, that wisdom, seeing things in a moment, seeing things clearly. And tonight, uh, somebody emailed me. Is Howard here? Yeah. Where, where are you? There you are. He emailed me and said, hey, what about the path of, uh, path of love, the path of devotion? <clears throat> I said, that sounds like a pretty good idea. <clears throat> I said that to myself. I don't know if I told you. Uh, you, he also said, well, what about the Sufi path and, and the path of devotion? And I, I don't know enough about the Sufi path myself to, to talk with great uh, any authority. So I'm just kind of making this a more personal one. Uh, the path of devotion or the path of love, the path of the heart, is a kind of personal experience. And um, so I thought that I could just uh, talk a little bit about my own experience and, and hopefully something might click for you and we can explore how this works uh, for all of us. So, and some of you who've known me for a long time uh, might have heard some of the things I'm gonna say tonight, um, some of them. Um, so keep a beginner's mind. Mm. I got into all of this stuff, meditation, the Dharma. Um, well, actually, the first book I ever read was Autobiography of a Yogi. That kind of blew my mind. But shortly after that, um, as many people 
my age and we were around, um, was just not only deeply affected, it, uh, this book, Be Here Now, really uh, changed my life. We all have those books. Probably each one of us could say, this is the book that did it. Uh, well, this is a book that did it for me and for many, many people. Uh, came out in 1970 and um, written by Ram Dass. And this, this guy, Neem Karoli Baba, also known as Maharaji, um, somehow, I don't know how it works even, but somehow a particular energy just came through the pages, came through the words. How many people have read Be Here Now here? Okay, wonderful. If you haven't, it comes in three parts. The first part is, a, is the uh, kind of uh, little biography of, of, of Ram Dass going from Harvard professor to um, spiritual seeker. And then the middle part is the Dharma rap, which is what did it for me, the Dharma rap, as I got more and more into it. Um, and then uh, the end of it is, uh, the last part is a cookbook for a sacred life, just different aspects, different kinds of, of practices and yogas that one can get into. I never met Maharaji. I never met him in the flesh. He died in 1973, September 11th, 1973. And uh, it was really, when I heard that he died, I thought, oh no, I've, I've missed out on the extraordinary connection. But that wasn't so. There's been a connection ever, ever since. And this is, I have this picture uh, right by my bed, right near my bed. This is right down by my office. I have a picture of him in the wallet. I don't know what is going on there. All I know is when I see his picture, when I think about him, it kind of centers me and gets me in a place that um, uh, gets me connected to a place, a certain uh, vibration that uh, aligns me with something very authentic and pure and opens my heart. Often, by the way, uh, not, or it, it's happened on, on occasion, I should say, that on retreat, uh, guiding people, if somebody is really going through um, a kind of shaky time, I have on more than one occasion said, hey, check this guy out. Oh, nice. I said, just hang out with this for a day or two. And this is a number of times people have said, well, that was, I don't know what I was going through, but I'm feeling a lot better now. And so um, I got into um, the Dharma after reading Be Here Now. I went out to Naropa uh, uh, Institute in 1974 because Ramdas was going to be there. And as, as I've said a number of times uh, here, I write about it in uh, Awakening Joy, I asked Ramdas about meditation. And he said, go check this guy Goldstein out. And uh, that was when I found Buddha Dharma and practice. And those first couple of years, 74, 75, I was just sitting so religiously, I should say. But back in New York, I was living in New York, and there was no sangha at the time, no, no sitting groups at all uh, that I connected with. And um, when Ramdas was holding a, a smaller uh, Dharma class for very committed practitioners, um, I, uh, that Joseph Goldstein told me about, I went to see Ramdas and to see if I could be in that that scene. Um, so the 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 curious thing is, I was so connected to Buddha Dharma and to the clarity and and precision and no frills of 
vipassana practice, just seeing things clearly. But at times it would be somewhat dry. You know, I, I wasn't getting the juice that I got from reading this. But then I went to that scene where um, it was a very devotional scene, people chanting, you know, Sri Ram, Jay Ram, and uh, actually I'm sure um, probably most everybody here has heard of Krishna Das, right? Or, and Jai Utal. Right? Both of them, when they're chanting, that's who they're chanting to. They were both with uh, Maharaji in, in India. But that was the scene, just kind of chanting and doing a lot of different bhakti um, uh, practices. And that seemed kind of sloppy to me my Buddhist temperament, you know, just there they are, you know, <laughs> it's all love and yes, you know, and there I am just kind of like, yes, I'm, I'm practicing here now. <laughs> and, and in fact, um, uh, that the, first, the first time I went to the, the, the class, uh, I had had this uh, very intensive uh, interview with Ramdas to see if it, it was appropriate to be in the class, and I, and I said that I was, you know, that that vipassana practice was my my main practice, my lifeline to the Dharma, and uh, that first class, he was very fierce times, and and Ramdas said um, uh, he got into this dialogue with somebody in the class. The another the other Buddhist practitioner, and this guy was saying about he was kind of voicing what I was thinking, you know, just the clarity of vipassana, and you know, he didn't know if he went for this whole, you know, Sri Ram J Ram kind of stuff, you know, and in the middle of this dialogue, he turns to me and he says, "He's the only friend you have in this room." And then he proceeded to kick him out of the class. I was like, oh my God, you know, it, it was fierce times. But I stayed with it for, I was in, you know, I went there uh, for, there was a whole year that this class went on. And I went back and forth between trying to decide which was my lineage, which was my practice for those who are really connected with Dharma practice but are trying to sort out, is there enough juice in it for them? You, you might appreciate the dilemma back and forth. You know, am I a, I'm a, a, a bhakta or a Buddhist? And Ramdas uh, many times said, don't worry about picking your path. Your path will pick you. You just keep on showing up and uh, getting what you can from whatever we do here. And uh, after about, uh, towards the end of that time, uh, I came to realize that there were, instead of looking at the differences between the paths, I could look at the similarities, and there were basically, there was a very profound alignment that came to me uh, one day. Um, Maharaji's basic instructions were love everybody, everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And there's a, a set of, of now probably CDs in, in those days. I still have the vinyl uh, collection, Love, Serve, Remember. Love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. The essence of practice, the mind that's free, the awakened, illuminated mind, liberated mind, is one that has no greed, hatred, or delusion, and put in more succinct terms, we are developing non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. 
those are really the same thing. Non love, non-hatred, just a slightly different order. Serve, non-greed, a generous, generous heart. Non-delusion, uh, remembering God is the same, really comes down to non-delusion, seeing clearly. Depends how you define the word God, but it's really the same thing. And there, they also represent different aspects of, diff of different kinds of yoga. Uh, there's the, the yoga of service, karma yoga, which is non-greed. There's the yoga of the heart, bhakti yoga. And there's the yoga of um, the wisdom or jnana yoga. And when I stopped seeing where the differences were and started seeing where they aligned, um, things started falling into place. There are some differences, though, and I want to uh, explore them with you. But they really lead to the same place. When you get in touch with the pure awareness that is your true nature. The natural expression of that is the loving heart. And in fact, in Vipassana practices, maybe some of you know, you develop mindfulness, and there's the natural byproduct of metta, of loving kindness. It just you're, if, you haven't, if you've done any retreats, you probably know, there you are just feeling your breath or noticing you're lifting your foot and putting it down. And somehow, over the course of the days, there is a natural kind of opening that occurs. There's a kind of sensitivity and a connection that you have with all of life. The other direction, when you are more and more living in your heart, and when you, if you are fortunate enough to be present for those glimpses where there's genuine, unconditional love, where there's no separation between you and everything around you, then the, that illusion of separation is dissolved and you see through this sense of self. And that opens up to the same wisdom that can be available through uh, deep meditation. As Nisargadatta Maharaj says in, uh, in I Am That, very famous line, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Love tells me I'm everything. I'm connected with everything. And the, the I kind of dissolves in that. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. This small sense of I is not who I thought it was. So they're just two sides of the same coin. But the, the path of devotion the, the, or the path of love, say the bhakti path, bhakti, B-H-A-K-T-I, um, starts out with being a dualistic kind of practice. It's me loving God, me um, uh, being a, a devotee to a guru, me loving Jesus or whatever being, some expression of God that one somehow has been deeply touched by and you fall in love or that connection opens you up to a place of, of love and you use that connection to go deeper and deeper into the place of where that love is coming from. At first it seems like, oh, that 
being out there is so wonderful. I want to surrender to him or her or to God, something outside of yourself. But that being or whatever it is that's activated that in you has opened you up to the place inside of you that is love. They're just a a vehicle or a catalyst for it. And you use that relationship until you see there's no difference between that being and yourself. There's a famous expression when the, the seeker really awakens, he or she sees that God, guru, and self are one. There's no separation. This is what we're moving towards in the bhakti path. Now you might say, oh, okay, I got the, I got the answer, so I'll just, I don't have to do all that other stuff. God, guru, and self are one, okay, I got it. But you can't kind of, this is not just an intellectual thing. You use that mysterious way that the heart is opened and feeling that energy so that it, it becomes a living experience, not just a thought. Oh, okay, I know, we're all the same, got it. Uh, you gotta really um, feel it, and it's juicy when you do. As far as Maharaji, I, I still speak to Maharaji in my mind. I don't know if he's around. You know, some people literally think that there's, there's a being where there are beings, guides or whatever that are kind of, uh, um, that we can have a relationship with. Sometimes I feel that it's an actual presence. Sometimes I, I don't, but I often say, um, when I speak, I say, Maharaji, or that divine energy that I call Maharaji, and then I'll say whatever I say. Because the mysterious thing is that there's this particular energy that comes out of different beings that can tune us to a certain resonance. Just like there's the energy of the Buddha, right? When you think of the Buddha, there's probably a somewhat of a different feeling than when you think of Jesus. And you might have as deep regard for Jesus as the Buddha, but there's a different, you know, a different flavor. There's maybe a very mm, equanimous stillness, um, just a very clear presence this is what I get with the Buddha, that can, you you just see a Buddha statue and it reminds you, oh yes, there is that channel that I can tune into. Or with Jesus, for many people, for millions and millions of people, billions of people, that emanation that comes out of Jesus, for me, it's one of um, unconditional love, uh, deep compassion and forgiveness. And there's just this different quality that resonates with, with us and with many people that we fall in love with. It just brings us home. And the same with you know, this, this being for, for me, uh, that there is a, with Maharaji for me, there's a kind of um, playfulness and ease, celebration, love very alive and very pure that when I think of that divine energy that I call Maharaji is right there that I can, I can touch and, and access.
So you use the, the dualistic as a vehicle to go beyond the dualism. In uh, the, the Ramayana, Maharaji, by the way, is supposedly um, supposed to be an incarnation of Hanuman. I'm sure you know, uh, many of you have seen Hanuman, the monkey god. Hanuman in the Ramayana, he's in the Ramayana, he's the servant of Ram. Ram Das actually means servant of Ram, which is a, a, a Hindu incarnation of God. And Hanuman has Ram in his heart. He, he, sometimes he'll open up his heart, you might see pictures of Hanuman, and inside is Ram, 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 just kind of emanating out. Right? And he loves to serve Ram. There's a line in the Ramayana, he says, um, Hanuman says, when I, when I don't remember who I am, I serve you. When I remember who I am, you and I are one. Maharaji, by the way, in his, uh, he, had, he kept a journal, he kept a, a diary. Every day, He'd write two pages, Ram, 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 Ram. Not much thinking in there that you have to kind of, you know, well, what happened today? You know, just. This capacity to love, to really open our hearts fully to something pure outside of ourselves is right there in Buddha Dharma as well. In, in the Theravadan teachings, there's what's called the Dhamma follower, the wisdom follower, and there's the faith follower. And this is from the discourse In the Dhamma, well proclaimed by me thus, which is clear, free of patchwork, those bhikkhus, practitioners, who are Dhamma followers or faith followers are all headed for enlightenment. And here's a a note uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, in the back of the, the book. These are two classes of individuals standing on the path of enlightenment. Dhamma followers are disciples in whom the faculty of wisdom is predominant and who develop the noble path with wisdom in the lead. When they attain the fruit, they are called attained to view. Faith followers are disciples in whom the faculty of faith is predominant and who develop the noble path with faith in the lead. When they attain the fruit, they are called liberated by faith. So there are it's not like you're, you're uh, if your heart, if you have a temperament of the heart, you can be a very uh, dedicated practitioner and just be so inspired by the Buddha, Gotama Buddha, have so much faith that it fuels your whole practice. That's a very valid way to awaken. And in the, uh, in the Tibetan practices, Tibetans are actually um, more overt as far as their use of devotion, particularly with uh, guru yoga. Let me see if I can find it. Where you take your teacher as an embodiment of the Buddha, and you see them, uh, you you meditate on the 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 connection that you have, and in seeing them as the the connection to the your inner wisdom. This is a, a really good book, Zogchen and Padmasambhava by uh, Sogyal Rinpoche. He says. Um, 
We have an inner teacher or guru, the active aspect of our Buddha nature, which from the very moment we became confused has been working for us to bring us back to our true nature. The outer teacher is none other than the spokesman of our inner teacher. He or she teaches us how to receive the message of our inner teacher. The outer teacher is a messenger, the inner teacher the truth. The outer teacher is teaching you how to find yourself, how to find the Buddha in you, introducing you to yourself until you find the Buddha within you. He's that substitute. The path beyond the mind is through the heart and through devotion. Tibetans are very big on devotion. Um, True devotion is not some kind of adoration or worship on a mundane or conventional level, but simply the natural ability to invoke the warmth and blessing of the truth in times of need through a genuine and pure devotion. So you're getting in touch with the truth through this relationship. Another way that devotion expresses itself within Buddhism is um, when you are so deeply touched by the Dharma that everything else pales in comparison. In one list, this is called citta idipada, uh, the, a, a very strong source of inspiration. Citta, C-I-T-T-A, heart-mind is what citta is, where you've been touched by the truth in your own practice, and you just want to go for it. You've fallen in love with the Dharma. So back to this dualistic. It's using the fact that we all have a capacity to love. We love to love. We love to be in love. Often, it's a painful experience, however, if you haven't noticed. You know. Sometimes it feels so good. And then sometimes when our beloved isn't there, it's like you feel bereft, you feel confused, or you feel disappointed, or you feel incomplete. This is what we do when we cathect and think the love is out there. But really, the idea with the bhakti path is to get in touch with that love that we can feel from time to time and tune in to what that is, what that feels like, and go beyond this this form to see, oh, that form is opening me up to this love that is not outside myself. Maharaji, by the way, one of his main instructions, he says, the best form to worship God is every form. And that's what this is kind of pointing to, that everything around us is an expression of the divine. And when you see that, when you take that as an instruction, not just, oh, that being just opens up my heart, but every being is your guru. Every being is an expression of the divine, even the ones that you can't stand. That's the, that's the higher practice. You know? <laughs> Even the ones that you can't stand, they're all given to you to wake up. This is not so different for me than when somebody says, um, I take refuge in the, in the Dharma. Really, they're saying, I surrender, I open myself to see that every moment in life is giving me what I need to wake up. But this is, on a devotional level, feeling the love, feeling the divine in everything, shining through of the divine. So it's 
using this personal love between two people uh, to give us a taste of the universal that exists in, in, all, in everything, in all of us. And then when you really use the bhakti path in a, in a deeper way, besides just somebody who awakens that in you, you use all of your relationships as a practice in seeing the divine. This is, uh, I'll read a piece from, be here now on the, the bhakti path, just one little paragraph. When we speak of falling in love, we might find that a slight restatement of the experience would help clarify our direction. For when you say, I fell in love with him or her, you're saying that he or she was the key that unlocked your heart, the place within yourself where you are love. When the experience is mutual, you can see that the psychic chemistry of the situation allows both partners to fall in love or to awake into love or to come into the spirit. Since love is a state of being and the divine state at that, the state to which we all yearn to return, we wish to possess love. At best, we can try to possess the key to our hearts, our beloved, but sooner or later, we find that even that is impossible. To possess the key, that person out there, is to lose it. That's the tricky thing. The more you want to possess it, the more painful it is. And what initially opened you up to this magical place of aliveness becomes a source of pain. Because then you think, oh, they hold the key to my love. And if they're not around, I'm, I'm screwed, basically. I'm in, I'm in trouble, right? That's where we get into real trouble. They hold the key to my love, then you get resentful if they don't manifest the way you want, or if they leave, or if, heaven forbid, they find somebody else who holds the key to their love, right? And then it gets very complicated. But when you see, oh, what a blessing that they opened me up to that place that is love. Not to think they're the only ones that hold that key, but what, what grace that they could open that up for you. And then you start seeing, instead of out there, I am love. You can't lose that. That's the beauty. You can't lose it. That's who you are. So maybe I'll just uh, do one little exercise, and uh, then we'll, we'll have a little bit of time for discussion. Uh, this is an exercise that I have in, in my book. Just close your eyes for a moment. And uh, think of someone that you love dearly. Pets are fine, children, any being that really opens that channel that feels sincere and connected. And uh, imagine that person or being here with you. Just for a moment, imagine they're in your space, right here, and feel that special energy that you share. Just no, notice what it's like in your body. Maybe your chest feels warm. Maybe there's a smile. And as you're tuning into that energy that you share, that sweet, magical connection, 
let your attention rest on the feeling of that loving energy. Where does that come from? Does it belong to that person? Do they own it? They may awaken it, help you get in touch with it, but that love is right inside of you. And just imagine getting more and more in touch with that natural capacity that you have so that it becomes something that just radiates out of you. Easily, just by remembering, oh, I'm love. And then just imagine, as you do, how it awakens the love in others around you. It's nowhere other than right inside of you, and it's all around you. It can be awakened by life if you just tune into it. This is the path of love of the heart, and it liberates the mind from confusion or the illusion of separation. It's just love finding itself. So we have a little bit of time, and I also want to mention, I've been reading, this new book by Ramdas called Be Love Now. It's kind of like the follow-up to be, be Here Now. Be Love Now. It's really wonderful. It's, it's, it's fabulous. It, it goes into depth into the, this path of, of the heart, and uh, I think you'd really enjoy it. So anything that you want to bring up, share, or ask about? The one that's really got me, James, is that um, you're speaking about transmission with, with Guruji. And many of us have experienced transmissions with various teachers of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. But in the Buddhist practice in the West, transmission is pretty much ignored. Um, I recall talking with John Travis, and he was telling me about his experience with the 16th Karmapa who's quite a transmitter. Um, And my practice and your practice, apparently many people's practices, are enlivened dramatically by the phenomenon of transmission. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced that when the Buddha spoke in Deer Park, that it was not just his words that were enlightening people, but it was the transmission that was coming from the Buddha. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just never, in my experience, talked about. So, Well, it's... uh, Actually, in, in the Tibetan lineage, it is talked about a lot. And in the Zen lineage, it's also talked about a lot. In the, uh, in the Theravadan lineage, teachers are often spoken of as kalyanamita, spiritual friends. But there's transmission that's happening all the time. I, I, I've mentioned this before. I see all of us as transmitter receiver energy units. That's what I think of these human beings walking around. We are constantly taking in from the world around us, whether it's positive energy or negative energy, we are constantly putting out positive or negative energy. We are affecting each other all the time. 
you're around somebody who inspires you and it just reminds you of something inside. So it definitely, it's, it's happening all the time, whatever you call it, and it happens, you know, when you, when you uh, listen to somebody that you really um, trust or are, uh, are tuned into, and it happens you're transmitting as well. That's what is going on all the time. So I, I completely agree that's what's happening. It's not spoken so much in the Theravadan lineage, but um, that's happening all the time. Right now, there was a great, there was a great um, um, master who just passed away this week uh, in Thailand, Ajahn Mahabua, at the age of 97. They're, and they're putting on this, this memorial in uh, March, which is kind of early. They usually let somebody on his level kind of lie in state for a few months, but they want to hurry it up. And they're expecting like a million people to come and pay their respects. What's going on there? He has touched so many people that they have to go and pay their respects. That's transmission. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about it, but it's it's just it's there. I guess not named. I guess the only thing I feel like it would that the Western teachers um, aren't transmitters like the Eastern teachers and are or are, are not are not in, in my experience, and that's um, I don't know. It's maybe it's a source of frustration, mm. and maybe it should just be acknowledged. Mm. See, I, I, I see it differently. You know, uh, I got some transmission from Joseph Goldstein. I have so many conversations with Joseph in my head, and he's always so wise, you know, that when I think of him, there's some, there's some kind of connection and, and ray that I feel. And I know that, you know, that can happen with, with Western teachers here as well. It's, all, it's not so much about, I'm going to, okay, here's a transmission ceremony, and I'm going to zap you. It's more what the, what, the, what the Dharma student brings to that relationship and is open to. There's transmission happening all the time. You know? Especially, you go and sit at Spirit Rock, going to be there for a month, over the course of those days of practice, for many people, I know it's true for me when I, when I practice, I go in an interview and I'm, oh, about six or seven years old. You know, all the armoring is down. I'm completely exposed when I'm sitting, when I'm in practice. Not when I'm in the seat. No, when I'm in the seat, I'm, I'm, I'm a grown-up. But, um, but, when, but when I'm going in there in that way, and there is definitely a field, an energy field of transmission happening that gets created. And, I, and it's a very, mm, it's, it's a responsibility to hold that uh, energy um, wisely because people project. It's a natural kind of thing. They project, and it's a healthy thing. They project. They love, they get inspired, they find their own beingness right in that communication. That happens all the time. So I, you know, I, I don't call it, you know, we're going to have a transmission here. Uh, but that's what's going on, or one aspect of what's going on. Somebody comes in and they're kind of like, and, you know, if the teacher is centered and and a loving, spacious witness, somehow it calms the person down. And they can connect with themselves and kind of move through something else. There's not, not that you have a, a particular program, but you're just a loving presence that can often hold whatever somebody else is going 
through to get them back to themselves. So I, I think there's transmission happening all the time. Okay, I guess it's, it's time to go. So um, we can close with a, a short loving kindness. Thanks. So once again, just feel that place in you that's capable of love. How amazing. I can love. I am love. It's just, it wants to shine through you. And feel the blessing of that. And uh, wish yourself well. May I stay connected to all the love inside and share it well. May I see my true nature and know real peace. And then to extend that out to everyone here and all beings everywhere, may all beings feel the love that's right inside of them. Realize that's who they are. They all wake up to their true nature and know real peace. May our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. for your attention and uh, enjoy Wes next week. I'm sure it'll be great. See you in a little while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.